to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Day. I'm James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And I'm Brittany Lombos. <laughs> <laughs> we are recording in James and Hannah's living room in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Brittany is not here today, no. I lied. But I have to reference her a few times in this conversation, so I have to acknowledge that she uh, helped put this list of movies together for right. today's episode. The movie I picked to talk about at the top was a recommendation for her specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of good to know that there's like a specific audience out there. I I don't know who listens to this usually. Right. Probably no one. But I know Brittany will probably hear it at some point. Yeah. There are a, f- a few vagrant souls out there <laughs> right. just aching for their movie recommendations every two weeks or every week. Hey, Brittany. Hi, Brittany. We miss you. Hope you're having fun without us. <laughs> I guess I should jump right into what I brought for Brittany to watch. I, I watched this movie on Hoopla called Here Before, hmm. which is a kind of like psychological thriller that reminded me a lot of The Lost Daughter and its premise. Like mm-hmm. uh, this like Irish mother is grieving her like young child who died. And this young couple moves in next door with a child that like looks and acts exactly like her daughter. Um, and like has memories that her, only her daughter would have. Weird. Just this uncanny resemblance. Mm-hmm. And she um, was doing good, like was like recovering, but now is obsessed with this child and keeps wedging herself more and more into the child's life and like offering to give her rides oh, and like man. make her dinner and like hang out, uh, which is always creepy for an adult to do with a child that's not theirs, but like right. extra so because she's like got that like maternal instinct and like wide eyed like intensity. Worth recommending because the mother is played by Andrea Riseborough, who is a great actor. Like, uh, she was excellent in Mandy mm-hmm. and Possessor. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. She's one of those people that, like, you don't really think about her yeah. being as amazing as she is. She just blends into, like, different roles. Right. She's very chameleonic. Yeah. This is her, like, version of Hereditary, almost. Like, it's oh, like an acting cool. showcase for her to, like, really break down and fully convey a person like at their like sharpest edge so i don't know the rest of the movie's like pretty good mm-hmm. but um andrea riseborough is like an amazing actor and it's like really fun to watch her just like stretch her legs and like do her thing yeah it kind of reminds me of that you ever saw that nicole kidman movie i think it's called birth oh i love that film yeah yeah i yeah. love but you were describing the premise it sort of reminds me of that like that uncanny like oh is this my child or my lover like yeah. you know like i don't know i love that setup it's very intriguing yeah in birth though it's like like an eerie art film and like doesn't really satisfy in the way that you might expect yeah uh this one is like a genre picture amazing where like it's like is it a ghost are people gaslighting her cool. like what's it kind of like flip-flops a little bit and i'll say like the thing that i complained about when we talked about the lost daughter on this podcast was like it had a great psychological setup like that but didn't really follow through with any like big event true this one almost like leans into like lifetime Amazing. showdowns between these like neighbors uh towards the end and things get really messy on like a domestic level oh yeah. exciting. Uh, so there's like a payoff to it on top of all that tension yeah yeah I, I love movies where adults project their like own personal like traumas on children even though it's extremely inappropriate yeah (laughs) because it's so easy like children are such a blank slate in some ways and adults have so much mental and emotional 
complexity. Like it's so easy to kind of use children as a way to process things in unhealthy ways. Yeah, you're at, like actively molding them into what right. you want them to be. Yeah. yeah. Very, very spooky. Yeah, it's an uncomfortable dynamic for sure. Yeah. And one I think Brittany would enjoy. <laughs> so Brittany, <laughs> check Brittany. out Brittany. Here Before. Watch the movie, Brittany. <laughs> you better watch it. What have y'all been watching? So, well, I just came back from vacation. I've been gone for like a week and I did not really... I went to the movies once when I was in New York, but right before I left, I watched my dad's favorite movie, which I oh man, which I had like purposely abstained from watching for at least like fifteen years because we watched it a lot when I was in high school, and it's called Field of Dreams <laughs> with Kevin Costner, who plays like this Iowa farmer, and you know, if you build it, they will come. He starts hearing voices from like these baseball ghosts that are essentially telling him to build a field <laughs> so that these baseball legends can come back and like play in the afterlife. And I like, I was like, all right, let me put this on. Like, this is totally a dad movie and it's my dad's favorite movie. So I was like, all right, I'm going to watch it again. And I went into it completely cynical. Like I hate baseball. (laughs) I don't like, this is so schmaltzy, like dad movie stuff. I'm going to hate it. And like, by the end of it, like Hannah had to console me because I was essentially in tears. (laughs) It really like hit me on a gut level. And it is so much about like sons and their fathers and dreams that have died that get passed to their children. And it just like really moved me in a pretty profound way. And so I was like, damn, I think I love feel the dreams. And like, it also connected me more with my dad where I was like, Oh, I get why he was connected did you call and talk to him after the movie? I talked to him a few days after. I yeah. was like, so I watched Feel the Dreams and uh, <laughs> pretty good stuff. Like we didn't go into detail, but yeah. I was like, I recognize that this is a pretty great movie. Yeah, You just had a moment of father-son understanding. Yeah. And I, I don't know. It was just like pretty powerful, like connect with, you know, because it is a lot about dads and sons and like connect with your father through a film. So I don't know. Feel the Dreams. I, I feel like I have like a special connection to it just because like I grew up watching it so much with my dad and then being able to like talk to him about it and all this stuff. But I don't know. I, I'd be interested what other people think about it. I don't know what the general consensus is, but it sounds boring. Right. <laughs> yeah. I remember watching it at like summer daycare a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those. I vaguely remember... James Earl Jones sitting at a desk oh, yeah. and be like, oh, that's where that voice comes from. It was like the first time I saw him on screen. He, he's voicing yeah. great in there. That scene where he threatens Kevin Costner with a baseball bat. Yeah. It's great. And I actually had a similar experience coming back from New York on the plane ride. Uh, I watched Forrest Gump again, <laughs> like sort of the same thing where like for years I hated Forrest Gump. I was like, this is such a bad movie. This is like showing exactly what's wrong with America that any idiot can make it if they're in the right place at the right time. And then watching it again, I'm like, I love Forrest Gump. This is like great. And it's like funny. I think it is supposed to be a satire. Oh, for sure. And I guess like younger me didn't appreciate that. And like it clicked. It's mawkish at the same time, though. 
It is. It, yeah. it, it, it straddles a fine line, but I like appreciated it more now than I did, you know, when I was younger. That was one of your defining opinions when I first met you mm. was that you did not like Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> you were the first person I'd ever met. This is real emotional growth here. That's right. Yeah. I have heard this. I don't know if it's pseudoscience or a real thing, but like uh, the oxygen levels that you experience on an airplane like make you more yeah, susceptible yes, to like yes, emotional yes, movies. Yeah, oh, absolutely. is that true? <laughs> yeah, I read something about that. Like s- someone watching like Beverly Hills Cops Four or something, and it made <laughs> them cry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's yeah, funny because I true. started watching uh, Prometheus, that really Scott, and like just something because it was so dark and sort of drab in the beginning. I was like, oh, let me just flip over to Forrest Gump, <laughs> and then like immediately I was like in it. And uh, yeah, maybe there is something about airplane movies. I do think that's a much better plane movie than Prometheus. Yeah. yeah. Prometheus is a better like dark room, no people around. But you. I think I'm just like getting to the age where I like am appreciating dad movies. <laughs> You've been like gravitating more towards just like mainstream Hollywood mainstream stuff lately. Mainstream yeah. Hollywood crap. And I don't even want to call it crap. Like I, I just like am over the cynical side of cinema. Yeah. I, I like schmaltz now. Well, there's plenty of that later in the yeah. episode. Yeah, we're going to get into it for sure <laughs> later. And, uh, I have to say also that one of the schmaltz movies that we um, are going to talk about is apparently well-loved by my father. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is a dad episode. I like that canonically James's dad has two favorite movies on this podcast <laughs> Rocky now: Horror. Rocky Horror Picture <laughs> yeah. Show and Field yeah, of Dreams. That, yeah. And that totally describes your dad. The duality of man, right? Well, yeah. And his third, like, his third favorite movie is Clockwork Orange. Like that's his, oh, Jesus that Christ. is his trifecta. It's like Field of Dreams, Clockwork Orange, and Rocky Horror. Try that as like midnight movie programming. Yeah. Uh, people showing up the third night right. for Field of Dreams. I mean, two of them. <laughs> are closer together than the other you know what i mean yeah of course that is an isosceles triangle (laughs) but i'll say like spoiler alert but when his dad comes out at the end to feel the ghost of his father to play baseball with his son from the grave i'm like it wrecked me so i look forward to your thoughts on ghost dad uh soon (laughs) i also when that was field of dreams was one of our like vhs movies and when I was really the first time I watched it, I think I was I was a kid and I thought it was a horror movie and I was so excited. Like I thought this <laughs> like scary ghost man was giving like talking to this man and, and forcing him to do and then like aliens would come or something. And I, I was wrong. So I was you a know, little disappointed. There but. is a horror version of that movie on the X-Files, like one of the earliest oh, really? episodes. There's like a Field of Dreams, like baseball ghost episode uh, of the X-Files. So if you want that okay. crossover, it's definitely gotcha. out there. Got wow. to get it. <laughs> well, in, in a way, it kind of reminded me of Frailty a little oh, bit, yeah, which yeah, I love yeah. too. Yeah. Like, what if the voices right. are right? You right. know, like, I love that concept. And obviously, that's taking it in like a totally right. different approach. Yeah, one like, is like turning your farm into a baseball field. And another is committing murder. Right. <laughs> but the idea is right. the same. The voices is, are, are real. Financial right. versus incarcerable ruin. <laughs> what have so, you been watching? Yeah, what have you been watching? Um, so I've, I'm continuing my trend of not watching a whole lot. However, I did catch up on a mo- movie that came out eight years ago that I've never seen. Um, that's John Wick by um, Chad Stileski. And uh, I don't know, I just, you know, I, I feel like the, 
the common narrative around John Wick is that it's like an above average action movie. Like it has a little something beyond the like the the pure action. It does have a very cute dog. I mean, I'm assuming that most people have that may or may not watch this or listen to this podcast have seen John Wick. But I really liked it. I thought that Keanu Reeves was uh I don't know. I get like he just um does not cease to compel me as he ages. The fight choreography was really good. Um but the the thing that kind of compelled me the most was I feel like we've been watching movies with these like hard action heroes recently and we've kind of talked about them in the what have you been watching like um Riders of Justice nobody. and Nobody. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean there I think there's something really fascinating about watching a movie and watching somebody do these like like I mean he's just killing 10 people a second it's like the body count is so high and then he has these like very elegantly choreographed kill sequences where he you know he like stabs a person in the neck and then he like gets behind them and he shoots another guy and then shoot you know and I'm like rooting for him to kill all of these people, <laughs> but I am not inclined to violence personally. And I do think those movies like really get at, at something guttural and especially like the story of a guy who is like an average Joe, but has like has retired from a life of crime or like bounty hunting or whatever. And he's trying to fit himself into society. And it's like, something happens that shows that it's impossible for him to do this. Like, I, f- I don't know, maybe this is projecting, but I feel like a lot of people have this feeling that, that they don't fit into the life that they're in. And, and there is something like what Keanu Reeves does inside of them. Like they could yeah. break out in this impressive way. That's what I thought was being parodied in nobody a little bit. Yeah. It was like, you know, he's just like living this suburban lad lifestyle. Right. Nobody knows that deep down inside him, he's Ooh, got all I'm these just like a- secret skills right. and like murderous instincts. Yeah, and then in Riders of Justice, like that, it was parodied in a different way, where it's like the violence that he's doing is not glamorous. It's like, I mean, just watching him kill people is very—he's like very rigid and mechanical. So I don't know. I kind of want to dive deeper into the subgenre of like like macho self-actualization um just from a purely sociological and I, point of view and i think what was interesting about john wick too is like like there's been countless movies where someone a guy's like family gets murdered yeah and he like has to avenge your death but there's something like so pure about a dog oh my god just like when they kill the dog in the movie, I'm like, fuck, like, if you got to kill 100 people to avenge that dog, to avenge, that's right. cool, man. Like- <laughs> yeah, it is cool. I do have to say, uh, one thing I really loved about this movie in particular was, like, the myth-making aspect of it. Like, John Wick is almost, like, this mythological creature in the underground. And then they have this hotel in New York where all of these people, like, all of these bounty hunters and criminals stay and it has this um, organization that 
is designed to allow them to stay there and kind of protect them. And it has its own set of rules, like nobody can conduct business on company grounds and they'll assassinate anybody who who does. I don't know. It was so it was like a, it was a very interesting world. But it uh, made me uh, think about my own relationship with violence, which is, you know, I don't know. Not great. I had like a really like petty reaction to that movie becoming popular where like Mm -hmm. it came out around the same time as The Guest. And I thought The Guest was like (laughs) so much better. Not that it's doing the exact same thing, but like it was just like reworking that like lone action hero thing and making it like creepy instead of cool but that was a more interesting john wick is a straightforward like yeah shoot him up action thing the guest is like actually interesting but he's like an ex-military yeah, guy yeah. who's like passing himself off as uh-huh. like a normal citizen and then like the like uh curtain drops and like there's this whole like secret conspiracy thing happening behind the curtain and it's creepy that he's hyper violent and super yeah. muscular and like just hanging around like suburbanites like it's like a normal thing right um i just thought it had like more to say about that character than oh absolutely john wick and stuff is just like this power fantasy yeah and it's kind of like when you watch like some kung fu movies where it really just comes down to the action scenes and they are pretty great though oh they're great yeah it was just weird like i by the time that john wick 2 and john wick 3 came around i've I've heard some of the action scenes are like even better than the first one but I was just like, well, it wasn't the guest, so I don't know. <laughs> like, it's really Take petty, it and I should get over it and catch yeah. up with the rest of the yeah. series. Yeah, I had, I like did not allow myself to watch John Wick for the last eight years, and I don't really know. I just because people talked about it so much, and yeah. I was like, I'm not gonna see it, which is stupid. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now. I feel like whenever something becomes a phenomenon, it takes me eight years to be like, oh, maybe I'll check it out. I don't know. Well, then you got that you know that pressure to like love it, like, right? If you yeah. don't call Paddington two the greatest movie ever made, no one's gonna knife right. you eight years later. <laughs> you might get knifed in the immediate right. three years. I mean, of I might get knifed um, by the people on this podcast. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> um, we, we're not that no we're not that Paddington crazy. No, I mean this this podcast is Paddington crazy, but not that Paddington. Yeah. Not not to the point of violence. I don't even think that made our like best of the decade. Episode. oh really yeah no okay. did it check the archives Brittany. yeah Brittany. <laughs> go back Where to are you, Brittany? <laughs> and if Brittany wants to write in our uh, email address right. is swampflicks at gmail.com <laughs> <laughs> if Brittany is listening yeah. <laughs> well i will i will watch the guest because that sounds great I'm, I'm just gonna i'm gonna try to truck through all of these yeah. movies that one's kind of an oddball because it's like not a male power fantasy it's like yeah. playing with a similar genre but, yeah you know anyway Today, we are talking about someone who was an action hero in the original run of those kinds of movies, those mm. big shoot 'em up films. Great segue. Uh, we're talking about <laughs> Nicolas Cage, you know, an actor who has been discussed extensively because, I mean, he is the greatest living actor and working right now. Um, I don't mind <laughs> saying that. Uh, but I feel like people talk about him either in like this late career stint he's in now or like everything he does is like a memeable stunt. Mm-hmm. Or they talk about his action hero days that I was just referencing, or maybe his like early run when he was like still like a raw weirdo, like around mm-hmm. the time of like Valley Girl and Moonstruck. I wanted to talk about something that isn't as covered, which is like Nicolas Cage as a heartthrob mm-hmm. and a sex symbol. So we're going to talk about four <laughs> movies where you're supposed to find Nick Cage romantic yeah. or sexy. 
And I don't think that happens very often anymore. It's pretty hit or miss. It's a mixed bag. It's Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think we might have disagreements on the misses, though, by the way. You think so? I think so. I I thought it was pretty clear when he was hot and when he wasn't. So I might have one of these movies that I expected to hate and loved like a lot. Oh, interesting. (laughs) I want to get into that. Okay. Uh, The way it shook out is um, I picked out a David Lynch film. And um, everyone else picked out movies for moms from the nineties, <laughs> so uh, it's gonna be a weird. But I am glad no you picked what. the David Lynch because it's like one of the only David Lynches I haven't seen. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it was. So I was very excited. It was a great it. mix, um, but yeah. very bifurcated. So we're gonna start with the David Lynch movie, and then we're gonna get into the mainstream stuff. Cool. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Are you gonna with an opportunity to prove my love to my girl, or are you gonna save yourself some trouble? Step up like a gentleman and apologize to her. Don't fuck with me, man. Look like a clown in that stupid jacket. This is a snakeskin jacket. And for me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. I wanted to talk about heartthrob Nick Cage and 1990s Wild at Heart in particular um, for a couple reasons. Uh, one is that it's one of the only David Lynch movies I haven't seen. Um, so it felt like necessary to check Agreed. it off the list. And also they just had that um, unbearable weight of massive talent movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like referencing a bunch of like Nick Cage as a movie star films that I just haven't thought about in a long time. Mm-hmm. I don't believe Wild at Heart came up, but mm. like specifically his like 90s and like early 2000s period before he like became a meme right um that era was just like something i had engaged with in a long time so it was kind of how i, I got I here i think we talked about that recently about con air and yeah. the rock and where he was really on the top of the like blockbuster charts you know and i feel like wild at heart is like right before that really took off like this is still in him and his like raw like method acting just making weird choices kind of era um i actually looked up on wikipedia like the uh <laughs> like eras of his work and how people like broke it up in like a historical way uh there was a section in there called um career slump which was from <laughs> 1989 <laughs> to 1994 uh Interesting. so like wild at heart Lee, and vampire's kiss were all in there Ooh, and like vampire's kiss. great film yeah but a really eccentric performance and you know all those movies bombed so yeah uh, but did wild at heart bomb I don't think it made the money it was yeah, supposed to. I think well, it, but it won the Palme d'Or. Like, and it then was, it was received with ecstatic praise when it premiered at Cannes. And then uh, and in all, America, more divisive. Too, yeah. yeah. Roger Ebert was one of the people booing it at Cannes. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did read his review, and it's it's pretty interesting. But. He hates David Lynch, though. Or at least yeah. he was made uncomfortable by Blue Velvet and this one in particular. But But you don't care for David Lynch, do you? I like him in this period. Like, I really like... Blue Velvet a lot. Oh, you do like Blue Velvet. Okay. And I love The Elephant Man, which is earlier. Yeah. Uh, but that's a great mix of David Lynch doing like his weird shit, mm-hmm. but also tempering it with like mainstream sensibilities. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the first two seasons of Twin Peaks are also a great example of that. Um, the most recent season of Twin Peaks, The Return, uh, had what I hate about David Lynch, which is like when he does not temper... Mm-hmm. His indulgences with like yeah. recognizable genre right. anchors and just like goes and off see, and does his shit. Yeah, he's and that, just out in like the mind field. And that that's where we like differ because I think that 
newest season of Twin Peaks is one of the best seasons of tell. And I also love Mulholland Drive and in. I hate Inland Empire. Well, actually, I was going to say, <laughs> I've never actually seen Inland Empire. Yeah. I meant to say Lost Highway. Ah. I like that one a lot. But I, I feel yeah. like I could probably get into Mulholland Drive and, and Lost Highway again if I like revisited them. Inland Empire, I never want to sit through again. And I did not finish Twin Peaks The Return. I got about nine episodes in. Ugh. Past the uh, nuclear episode that was supposedly the peak of television as a medium. And I was like, <laughs> what the fuck is everybody talking about? This is garbage. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> this movie, 1990, Wild at Heart. This movie uh. is perfect, David Lynch. This yeah. is like... Mm. His best shit, it like really hit me. I I don't I, I cannot remember the last time I fell in love with a movie as quickly as I fell in love with yeah. this. Like it was just hitting all of my pleasure centers rapidly and immediately. <laughs> uh and feels like a perfect crossover of my sensibilities and the fact that like it feels like John Waters directing Twin Peaks or like David Lynch directing Cry Baby. Like it feels like a crossover of him and John Waters is mm. to worldviews but you would not hear david lynch say that like he thinks this is his wizard of oz uh and there are a lot yeah. of wizard of oz references yeah. in the film but it's him doing camp and he has that like sinister undertone and that artificiality to him already mm-hmm. so by doing that he like crosses over into like john waters territory which is like to me the height of cinema <laughs> and, like the best that any anybody could achieve in the medium is like a john waters film yeah uh, so he, he met me more than halfway on this one this is Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern, both white hot in this film. Oh like, my just God. So horny. They're about to like supernova on camera. Right. <laughs> uh, they play two star crossed lovers in a kind of Romeo and Juliet tragedy scenario where uh, Nicolas Cage is a rock and roll reprobate. Um, he loves the speed metal band power mad who appear in the film. <laughs> Dude, when the like the heavy metal stuff happened, I was like, "Hell yes!" Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my god, that hit my like pleasure center. Like, uh, that scene where she's it starts playing the music and then she's dancing on the bed, like, yeah. and then it cuts or it fades to the club to and the concert. she's uh, and like blood red lights. It's so good. And the close-ups of like the cigarettes being so lit many matches, with the death metal, and the yeah, very cool. Yeah, and the credits are just like um, a wall of flames with like gigantic block text and like thrash mm. metal playing. Uh, <laughs> just an immediately badass aesthetic. Um, it ends up being a road trip movie between that dirtbag speed metal enthusiast and his girlfriend, whose um, suburban mother disapproves of her affection for this bad boy mm-hmm. who goes in and out of jail. Um, part of the reason he goes in and out of jail is because the mother keeps sending people to kill him. <laughs> and then he um, retaliates in the most hyper-violent way right. possible, like over yeah. um, defends himself. In the very right. first scene of the movie, he just bashes a guy's head oh, into yeah. the marble floor and you just see his brains seeping out the back of his head. The violence is not fun to watch. It's like That's a grotesque murder. Well, and there, there's like some rape stuff too. And I, yeah. You know, and Lynch has gotten some flack for how he treats his female characters or whatever, but I, I will say there's this, a li- some gross stuff. The sexual there. assault in this one in particular, isn't as hard to watch as blue velvet to me though. Cause like it's so heavily implied and like discussed and like part of Laura Dern's backstory. Yeah. But it's not like physically 
represented on screen at length. Not that, like, like when Blue you're Velvet. watching Isabella Rossellini and right. yeah, it's very yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I will say that the scene with Willem Dafoe and Laura Dern is super uncomfortable. Yeah. And uh, Willem Dafoe looks the most disgusting that I've ever seen him. And he looks disgusting in quite yeah. a few films. He, he does have a pencil-thin John Waters mustache yes! uh, in the film. Yes, he does. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that was a dig at John or just like a uh, weird coincidence. <laughs> but uh, he has like, yeah, just nasty teeth. And like he wears like all black leathers. He just kind of creaks around. Yeah. Um, and he corners Laura Dern in a motel room and basically... Forces her to say that she consents to sex. Yeah. In a very long, wide shot, just yeah. to humiliate her and yeah. to like trigger her childhood memories of sexual assault. Okay. It's so hard to like talk about this movie to say it's like badass and awesome, which right. is gr- true, but it also is like grotesque and yeah. like hard to watch. Well, because it is like kind of like Blue Velvet. It's about like this gross underbelly of the American dream and like Lynch is always been obsessed with like the 50s aesthetic but like showing for how like kind of disgusting it is too so like this is getting at a lot of the same themes as blue velvet but maybe a little more like style over substance in in a good way yeah yeah i feel like that like the first half of the movie is about the aesthetic of that like high throttle lifestyle and Laura Dern and Nick Cage make it look very cool and they're just like having a bunch of sex and like driving around in a beautiful car and dancing and then they like become more and more involved with people that are living grotesquely in a real way like who have kind of grotesque hearts and spirits and then it's like the hangover kind of sinks in and both of them are getting like increasingly uh harried and scared and like nobody is having a good time anymore laura dern in particular feels yeah. like she's about to like tear her skin off like right. she's just like so deeply uncomfortable and like mm-hmm. when she screams it feels like she's gonna explode yeah she is incredible in this movie yeah just really like I guess you would call it overacting, but it's like overacting in the way that like Nick Cage gets praised for recently. Yeah. She's like hitting that same like ecstatic pitch that's like above but, human but behavior. But that's like the tone of like I found the script to be so arch. So, yeah. And it's like it's so over the top. Like some of the lines of dialogue are insane and like they're kind of ridiculous, but they deliver it in like a fully committed kind of way and like some of the lines in here like we were when we were watching we were kind of chuckling yeah it's funny yeah yeah <laughs> the whole world is wild at heart Hard. and weird on yeah. top and weird on top <laughs> and he like looks over to her and he says you said some of the weirdest things sometimes pumpkin <laughs> uh but yeah it's basically a road trip movie like these two lovers are like escaping her mm-hmm. mother's fury and she just keeps sending more and more weirdos to kill him on this like cross crunchy road trip, they go through new Orleans for like a brief mm-hmm. pit stop. Uh-huh. And then they kind of just get lost in the desert on their way yeah. to see the wizard, uh, yeah. <laughs> whatever the, the wizard of Oz equivalent. And this is ends up being Glenda, the good witch at the end of the rainbow in this one. Yeah. But. Who is uh, Laura Palmer? Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of twin peaks. Actors. Yeah. There's a few. Yeah. Um, Cheryl and Finn is just in it for a brief cameo, yeah. like lost in the desert after a car accident, yeah. with, like a head wound. This I think he made this around 
the early episodes of Twin Peaks, like right after mm-hmm. shooting the pilot. Uh, so if you like that early yeah. Twin Peaks, like soap opera artificiality, he's doing that here. But like you said, it's applied to that like Americana 1950s hot rods and rock and roll aesthetic. Yeah. I guess I have to ask before we go any further: Is Nick Cage sexy in this movie? Yes, yes. I agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is sexy. Of the of the four we are going to talk about, he's sexy in half of them. This one, I think he's probably the sexiest. I think this is the number one yeah. sexy Nick Cage. Yeah, that part where he does like a front flip out yes! of the oh my god the car and just like it's so cool yeah. and like his snakeskin jacket and he's d- just doing Elvis. Mm-hmm. Did you know that he sees his snakeskin jacket as a symbol of his individualism <laughs> he, and his yes. belief in personal he, freedom? He made it clear multiple times. <laughs> I don't know. Nick Cage is sexy. This is kind of my theory. It's like when he's unhinged, that's sexy Nick Cage. Mm-hmm. When he's like trying to be like, I don't know, kind of sappy and normal, doesn't Weird. work. Yeah. He doesn't... Like physically, he's not hot. It's like his like mannerisms and his craziness are what makes him exciting. You need his intensity, yeah, because his looks aren't doing that. Right, but yeah. like when he fixates that intensity on you, that's hot. Like yeah. the reason that Laura Dern finds him hot in this movie, she's like, "You pay attention to me," and like he's obsessed with her, and like their mutual back yeah. and forth is yeah. like where that electricity is coming from. I also think he looks hottest with longer hair that's probably true and i think part i think he does have sexy eyebrows so they're like very dark and kind of narrow like but straight that, on that, that hairline is pretty much like receded and stayed where it <laughs> right had, it hasn't for, stopped re- or it had it, it stopped, stopped receding, receding but it yeah. never he got hair plugs recently so oh, the okay. hairlines have right, been mind. like reestablished <laughs> yeah. to its former glory <laughs> But yeah, the, his eyebrows are very sexy. So when he's staring at you with this crazed look, like, yes, that's hot. I also, th- I think in all of these movies, there are varying degrees of like chemistry between the two leads. Like it does and doesn't work to yeah. varying degrees. And part of that is whether or not it's believable that this person would be attracted to Nick Cage. And his relationship with Laura Dern totally works. And I do think it's because they're at the same level of intensity. And I've actually, I don't think I've ever seen him where he was matched in intensity by his leading um, person when he was being like a crazed maniac. One exception, which would be face off. Oh. <laughs> but that's it, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it's not a romantic, well, I guess it's kind of a romantic was- pairing, but like. Their yeah. mutual obsession in that movie, they right. Him and Travolta really match each other's energy level. Yeah, yeah. But you're saying like a romantic, a, and I think I was partner. specifically thinking like a woman. Oh, like yeah. I feel like normally, like women don't. I don't know that women get to be unhinged with a with a man, and I think Laura Dern totally knocks it out of the park. There's this scene where. It's actually the same scene where he does the like the front flip out of the car where they're driving down the road and she's listening to the radio and she's trying to find some music and it just, <laughs> she just keeps finding reports of like grisly murders and or and like she, uh, religious sermons right. about like 
child molestation yeah. and stuff. Oh and my she's God. like, she just like stops the car and jumps out and she's like, Sailor, you find me some music right now. I can't handle this. I mean it. And she's just like <laughs> shivering from her toes to her head. And then Sailor t- <laughs> turns the radio on and he finds Power Mad. And then they're like, screaming together then he flips out of the car and then they're like dancing in the desert it's so so cool like they just look like they were having a great time together that scene is straight out of a john waters movie polyester in particular there's this character named lulu who like can't Uh sit still like she's always dancing yeah uh and and she's like i can't wait to have an abortion (laughs) like everyone's got that same level of like uh just like over the top line deliveries yeah i think too like why this movie works for me is like their relationship is so sweet. It's just like mm-hmm. the kind of the perfect relationship. Like all this crazy shit's happening around them and they're just like there for each other and they communicate mm-hmm. well. And I don't know, like yeah. it, it's a very sweet movie underneath all the like the gross stuff that's happening around them. It, it, and again, it kind of goes to the Wizard of Oz. It's just like they're on this journey to... I don't know, get home and be safe and be together. And I, I, I thought it was like sweet for uh, how kind of gross yeah. some of the uh, periphery yeah. stuff was. It, it's romantic in the way that like Mandy is romantic. Like, yeah, there's like a tragedy to it. But like, I don't know. In Mandy, like their love for each other sort of resonates beyond how fucked up the whole scenario yeah. is. Yeah. So if you find that movie romantic, Wild at Heart <laughs> has a similar uh, romantic setup. The difference, though, is that um, Laura Dern isn't killed in the first five minutes, and you actually get to hang out with her more. Right. <laughs> Amazing. Poor Andrea Riseborough. But, but yeah. for like our topic, I think this is like peak Nick Cage sex symbol. Yeah. For Nick Cage, hot or not, this movie gets a hot. hot. Definitely a hot. <laughs> I also would be remiss if we didn't mention that this is in his Elvis period. Yeah. Uh, oh. So like, uh, there's that scene of the Power Mad concert where he stops the band. Yes. Uh, so that he can sing an Elvis number uh, to woo his girl. And, and all the, the band, metal chicks are screaming. <laughs> no, and the band totally, yeah. like, they're like, sure. <laughs> I wonder how much of that he brought to the table. Like, I was watching a lot of the DVD extras on this and... It seems like Lynch was like in a really collaborative space with everybody. Like Diane Ladd, who is Laura Dern's real life mom and plays her fictional mom in the film, she came up with the scene where she like keeps with applying more and more lipstick oh on her body. Oh my god, Man, that, was that was terrifying. Just horrifying. fucking horror show. Yeah. And on set, Nick and Laura stayed in character the entire time. So uh-huh. they would like call them by their character names um, between takes. Mm hmm. And apparently Nick Cage found that snakeskin jacket at a thrift store and like brought it to wardrobe and is like, I'm wearing this. <laughs> so I, I don't even know if that Elvis stuff, even though it fits perfectly in that like 1950s yeah. aesthetic, I don't even know if that was something Lynch wrote or if Nick Cage brought that to the table because he was obsessed with Elvis at the time and like. Anytime you could shoehorn Elvis impersonations right. into a movie, he did it. <laughs> and it's also, I have to say that, like, I was reading some of his biography, and, like, he did end up marrying Lisa Marie Presley, Elvis's daughter. As part of his, like, Elvis obsession? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just bizarre <laughs> that, like, he obviously loves Elvis, and he married his daughter, 
and they're married for like quite a few years. Yeah. He did say in an interview recently that he's a goth now, so maybe this Elvis movie uh, is behind he's him. A goth. I love it. Oh wow! I love it. <laughs> uh, I would also be remiss if I didn't um, include Brittany's opinion on this movie uh, that she sent to us via text. Oh <laughs> so yeah. She, so now Brittany can hear her own opinion. Yes. Brittany says. I will say that Wild at Heart got five stars for me, and it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. <laughs> wow. And I agree with That's that. That's a opinion. glowing... Uh, go watch this movie. Good luck seeing it. Oh, that's it's right. It's not really available <laughs> for streaming. I got it from the New Orleans Public Library. Yeah, I also got it from the New Orleans Public Library. It should yeah. be more you readily available. It. I'd like to watch it on HD next time. Yeah. You know what? Nick Cage and Laura Dern go on a journey, so you can go on a journey to find this DVD. I love you. No. Oh, don't you get it? I've ruined your life! Are you crazy? These past couple of days, I felt like half of me was missing. You won four million dollars in the lottery. I mean, do you know what an amazing gift that is? And because of me, you have nothing. Because of you, I have you. Why can't you understand that? If you don't want me, that's different. If you don't want me, I'll walk right out that door and you'll never see me again. But please stop talking about the money. It means nothing to me. Brittany's selection for this episode. Hi, Brittany. Hi, Brittany. (laughs) Is a movie from 1994 where I think Nick Cage was at his most normal heartthrob, like regular leading man in a movie where you're just like supposed to find him romantic. You're not supposed to really think about sex during this movie that much. No. <laughs> I also wouldn't I wouldn't say he's a heartthrob. He's like an everyman yeah. sort of But you're supposed to find him attractive. Yeah, I, I mean I guess so. But like maybe it's more about his personality than his looks. Right. I, when yeah. I think of heartthrob, nice I think guy. of like a George Clooney or a Brad Pitt. Like I don't think he ever was approaching that. Like this is just pure, like, he's a policeman with a heart of gold. Yeah, purely his character is he is a good person. Yeah. It's called It Could Happen to You. Uh, its working title was Cop Gives Waitress $2 Million Tip, which I wow. think perfectly <laughs> encapsulates wow, the Wow, that's like <laughs> the whole synopsis. Wow. Uh, it's, in a, it's an adaptation of a newspaper headline of a real thing that happened. Like, this cop mm-hmm. didn't have money to tip his waitress. He's like... Let me do this. If I win the lottery tonight, I'll split my winnings with you. And then he won the lottery and actually like followed through and gave yeah. a $2 million yeah. tip. This is copaganda. Uh, it's about how, <laughs> like, quoting the movie, being a cop is the most important job in the world. Um, and Nicolas Cage is a perfectly decent, nice guy. He's a cop who mm-hmm. um, has a nag wife at home, played by Rosie Perez. Yeah. Who, all she wants is money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he plays stickball with the kids right. in the neighborhood. Uh, when his wife like has a big blow up fight with him, she goes, I'm so sick of your niceness and your decency. <laughs> uh, like yeah. That's how good of a guy he is. The waitress is played by Bridget Fonda, who I think is most famous for I mean, I remember single white female. Single white female. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's about it. Um, she's perfectly adorable in this movie. Yeah, she's very cute. Neither her or Nick Cage bring like an intense passion to the screen here. No. It's just two nice people who happen yeah. to like split a lottery ticket. This is yeah. a PG movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, and I liked it. Yeah. I like that like it doesn't have to be passionate. It's just like yeah. 
two good people that like to talk. Sex does happen, but it it is preceded by a big old kiss and then goes to black and followed by them in big fluffy bathrobes looking out the window. (laughs) It's the most chaste, like, after sex scene I've ever seen. So the sex scene happens when they both, like, have to run away from their greedy lovers who want right. the lottery money. Mm, yeah, money, both money, like, money. I have to get away from these greedy people in my right. life. Uh, so they both run to this like grand hotel, the plaza, and um, accidentally book adjoining rooms. So it's like they did not intend to have sex. It just right. like it happened. Right. You know? For this movie to work on the moral ground it's working on, there needs to be no salacious intent yes. at all. Like, oh, we're accidentally at the plaza, mm. and oh my gosh, we have adjoining rooms. Uh, like, the world has completely forced them together. And what's funny about that setup, too, is like the way they get thrown together by happenstance at this grand hotel mm-hmm. feels like it's straight out of an old Hollywood romance. Yeah. Um, where like the sex also wouldn't be on screen. Right. And like the whole vibe of it with like the, uh, the angel character played by uh, Isaac Hayes, who's yeah. like introducing the story and like the grand coincidences and just like things just sort of like moving themselves along like fate uh, mm-hmm. just felt very old Hollywood in the way that like, You've got mail was an update to shop around the corner. Like it, mm-hmm. fe- it just feels like a very like chaste throwback to like a Hays Code period. Mm-hmm. But in those like Hays Code movies, there would have been jokes about sex that were like snuck around the censors. Yeah, uh, this movie's like playing it for pure schmaltz. Yeah, and it's fine. Like I, I don't have anything positive or negative <laughs> to say about it. Uh, maybe besides the copaganda issue, which is a big deal to me. Like, yeah, being a cop is the most virtuous thing you can do in the world. Uh, like, really underlines that as many times as it can. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of agree that it's fine, but I don't know. After like, you know, I just came back from New York, and like, this film is set in New York, and like, it feels authentically New York, like the kids playing baseball in the streets and walking around the different burbs. And like, it is a very New York film and I, it is celebratory of like cops, which I guess is like kind of annoying, but the whole, the whole thing has like a very black and white morality to it that I kind of thought was like pretty endearing and sweet. And like, it was like a fine time to, pass an hour and a half (laughs) i don't know like i thought it was sweet it was a good time so i this is actually the first nick cage movie i ever saw so not really setting the real nick cage standard i think this is kind of an outlier in his movies but i remembered when i saw that letter scene at the very end where they're can I spoil the end of the movie? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this was made decades ago. So yeah, the uh, Nick Cage's wife uh, takes all of the lottery money in in a divorce with him. So he and the waitress are together. They don't have anything. And then the um, Isaac Hayes character is posing as a homeless man, and they invite him into their cafe, which is closed, and they give him soup, and he takes pictures of them and posts it in the newspaper, the New York Post. Um, which is the newspaper of choice in this movie. And um, all these people start mailing in like 5 and $10. So it's all sent to the cafe where the waitress works. And their cafe is just overflowing with letters full of money and they get like $600,000. And I just like, I don't know, our, 
our economic system has become so dependent on like crowdfunding from people that I just when I, the first time I saw this, that was like this big revelatory, like beautiful moment. And seeing it the second time, it was like a little sour. I was like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if these people need six hundred thousand dollars. Like, it's not like she stole all of their money. Like, this was just free money that they got from the lottery. Yeah. You know, but they are like basically near destitute at the end. of the Yeah, film. no, I just, I don't know, something about it, like. What did they, like, they, I don't know, they paid for the rides of some New Yorkers, and they, like, took the kids to the Yankee Stadium. I don't know. I they just, made one homeless man soup. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know. Like, man, I don't know if these people need $600,000, but I don't know. But she did lose her cafe, so I get that. I don't know. But it just didn't quite sit with me right the second time. But I, I guess it it is, like, getting at the, like, tipping culture thing, where it's, like, we have to look out for our waitresses and our, you know, servers. Yeah. Like we have to, and that's like exactly what the crowdfunding is. It's like, it's up to us to like look out for our fellow human beings. Cause the like overarching economic system is not going to do it. It also felt like a throwback to like, it's a wonderful life and like miracle on 34th yeah. street yeah. too. Like I just, I just kept thinking about all the ways this movie felt very like, old-fashioned even for the 90s mm-hmm. like it was like calling back to like the 50s yeah it, no it's extremely old-fashioned yeah i thought it was quaint it was like yeah. yeah it was nice and i will say like okay so we started with like nick cage and laura dern white hot sex energy <laughs> this is like i think actually nick cage and bridget fonda have good chemistry and the, like they seem like good pals they seem yeah. like good they like Again, talking. Good yeah. people that are nice and they like talking and they have sex, but it's off camera <laughs> and they're happy. And there's something about that. I, I found it really sweet and nice. I don't think you're supposed to even think about their romance that much. Like, I feel yeah. like the main crux of the movie is that like water cooler discussion. Like, what would you do if you promised someone your lottery ticket and then you actually won? Yeah. It's kind of like when we talked about Indecent Proposal, like the whole point of that movie is like, what would you do if you were in this right. scenario? But I, I did hate how much the film punished like the Rosie Perez oh character for like, okay, whatever. She wanted to buy some mink coats and she was a little greedy, but like at the end of the movie, it's like she's destitute. She has to go back to work at her mom's nail salon. Like, well, I don't know why the film felt the need to like moralize yeah that situation and like right that wrong and same as stanley tucci like bridget fonda's ex like oh now he's going back to just driving a cab he's scum scum again yeah (laughs) he's scum again yeah something about that like the morality of this film was a little off and for for a movie that is supposed to be about like oh the you know the hard-working people you know, waitresses and people that are, you know, struggling to get by, you know, they need to be like uplifted and celebrated to like then kind of punish Rosie Perez and Stanley Tucci. Like, oh, he's working a cab now. She's in a nail salon. I don't know. It was like kind of biting at its own message a little bit for me. Yeah. As if the cop and the waitresses jobs have more like dignity to them right. than cabs and but it's all service work I don't right really exactly yeah 
I also don't like the idea that like one of the reasons you're supposed to like feel for this guy is that like he's kind of a sad sack who's like it's too bad my wife at home is such a greedy bitch. <laughs> like, he has like these like sad eyes yeah. like walking around Aww. like I could be happy if my wife wasn't so greedy. We never talk anymore. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> is he too sad to be hot in this movie, or is he like? romantic what's going on with his yeah, like I, lovability I, here? Not. I, I think he's lovable just yeah. like when he takes the kids to yankee stadium again like i know it's pandering but it's right. so sweet and like he's so selfless and like there's a scene where like rosie perez he gives money to a homeless guy and she takes it out of his <laughs> cup and he like puts Stop it back in money. like stuff like that it's like stacking the deck yeah. I'm like, okay, he's a sweetheart. It's very pro wrestling. Like you almost expect her to come out in, like a money suit. Yeah, right. It's like <laughs> such a clear heel face dynamic. Yeah. yeah. I think he's pretty likable in this movie. On a scale of hot or not, I th- I think he's uh oh, he's he's hot. If I was a forty five year old woman and I met this version of Nicolas Cage, I would be attracted to him. Yeah. I feel like in regards to the topic of this episode like i think it works because he has good chemistry Mm -hmm. with his other lead and it's like hitting at what works for him as an actor i guess like because he can either do the over the top like wild at heart thing or do the like every man yeah thing that's my question about him though like why do people miss this like, if it's such an embarrassment that he's, like, doing weird stuff now and, like, is so memeable and, like, over the top and, like, artificial, how is this better? Like, he puts in a performance here that fucking anybody could do. I yeah. could do this and I cannot act. <laughs> like, he's just there. And, like, I guess it's admirable to know that if he wanted to dial it down, he could and just play, like, a normal guy. Yeah. Because, like, even when he's yelling in this movie, like, there's a whole courtroom battle with Rosie Perez, yeah. which is trying to get oh, which, money back. Which I hate. Oh, well, so I just want so I just want to say, stupid. like, I hate when films like this, like, have to end in some courtroom to battle. Like, relitigate I, right. the I hate the litigation right. stuff. It, and like, the, it drives me crazy. And I, so many movies there's do it. There's just, the, the court case was so funny to me, too. Like, they're trying to argue over, like... Who came up with the lottery numbers as oh, if it is legal standing? But in the like behind the like in like the negotiations at the round table yeah. with the lawyers, he yells at her um, and expresses anger. And we've seen Nick Cage yell so many times yeah. that we know that he can do it like intensely and like wildly. Right. But even in that yelling, he feels like gentle and restrained and he's like right. he stays in character as this like milk well, toast because guy. Rosie Perez is being so awful in that moment. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I want her money too. Like I want everything back. But I feel like people are specifically missing this from him. Like, Oh, remember really? when he was like a famous normal yeah. actor? It's embarrassing that he's like fallen from that grace. I'm like, I don't think it is. Yeah. I don't know. I don't agree with that. No. At all. Like, yeah. I mean, wild at heart, his performance is special. It has like this really special, kinetic energy and yeah you're right i mean this could be played by anybody yeah you know like i don't really care if nicholas cage has the type of range to pretend to be a normal person i don't know i guess i'm just like 
probably still mulling over my issues with um, incredible weight of massive talent where yeah. they're like talking about this movie and guarding Tess and one of the other movies we picked to talk about later, like all this like subdued. I even had that problem with how people praise him in Joe where it's like, oh, Joe was like a return to form for him. Um, and he's like so boring in that movie. Yeah. I thought I thought so normal. Yeah, I thought Pig was. Yeah, that's a good balance. That's a good balance. It's like it's definitely subdued, but he has moments of intensity. Right. That like it really you know he's pushing himself as an actor. Yeah. Yeah, like it could happen to you. Feels like you you know you're phoning it in. It's a little lazy. I I don't probably Nick Cage go back to that. No, I don't miss this at all. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But again, I feel like the movie itself is like, it's passable, fine, feel-good entertainment. Yeah. Well, I did say the rest of the films after the David Lynch one were all mom movies, but we did have one high-concept mom movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's a little more over the top in its premise. That was James' selection. Yeah, City of Angels. It's so funny that I'd never seen this movie because I heard when I was in like middle school that Iris song... The Goo, Goo Dolls. the Goo Goo Dolls was all over MTV and like they had clips from the movie in there and like I felt like I had seen the movie even though I didn't see it until like two days ago. Ditto. I, I remembered scenes from the movie that weren't in it and then yeah. I went back and watched the music video and I was like, oh, I was remembering the Goo Goo the, Dolls. The Goo Goo Dolls, <laughs> right. Exactly. Not the actual film. It's also funny too. It's based off of a movie called Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire, which I actually own, which I have never seen. Me neither. <laughs> it's literally like sitting on my shelf. It was unopened. Supposedly until- one of the best movies ever made. Yeah. Yeah. We're fools. And We've it all takes seen place in like <laughs> the Nick Cage version and, first. <laughs> um, and from what I understand, it's like, yeah, a beautiful art house movie that, you know, pontificating about life and death and meaning and all this stuff. And then, I guess they acquired the rights to it to do City of Angels, which, you know, has Nick Cage playing Seth, who's this like, you know, he's an angel whose job it is to kind of welcome people into the afterlife. And him and his group of like trench coat angels just sort of hang around. (laughs) Like most of the movies, them just kind of hanging about, like sitting, gazing. Observing humanity. Yeah. And they're, they're kind of confused by it. They don't quite understand it, but they're interested in it. But he becomes infatuated with Meg Ryan's character, who is a surgeon, who has like, lost a patient. And she's kind of grappling with questions of like, oh, I, you know, I did everything I could do to save this person. Like, what happened? You know, maybe it was fate. And he just like falls in love with her. And... He finds a way essentially through this other character played by Dennis Franz, who's another angel who's through free will decided, like, I want to become human, experience human sensuality, whatever. They describe it like fallen angels like Lucifer, but like basically they kill themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Nick Cage decides to fall and he jumps off a building to his Yeah, the like, whole death. mythology is like, you just have to make the choice. I want to become human. And then you jump off a building. And after you land, like, you're awakened to, you know, your new body. Yeah, as an adult person or whatever yeah. age you are yeah. as an angel. And so, like, 
a lot a lot of the movie is just sort of Seth as this angel kind of pontificating and he's looking at humans doing human things and he's kind of you know pondering and reading a movable feast he hangs out in libraries I guess that's what angels do and yeah it's like a little creepy like he's just kind of like peeping on everyone but anyway like he gets his chance like he decides like okay I love this woman I want to become human to be with her and he takes his you know great fall he is now human and then I, I, I don't want to fully spoil it, but it turns into like a pretty tragic scenario towards the end. And so it's this kind of like theological, tragic love story set to music by the Goo Goo Dolls and like Sarah McLaughlin. And Sarah right. McLaughlin. Oh yeah. Liam's. Oh, and Alanis Morissette and Alanis at the Morissette. very end <laughs> in a very weird, uh, it's a very yeah, weird song choice. Singing the song, You're Uninvited. Right. Which, again, like, you can read into, like, it's pretty creepy the way he, like, watches her or whatever. But anyway, this is, like, very, I don't want to say it's, like, dated, but the music puts it in a specific, like, time. Mid-90s time and place. New agey, kind of, like, booming bass. Yeah. And, again, I haven't seen Wings of Desire, but it seems like a more mainstream Hollywood where you've stripped all of the interesting like kind of theological topics and made it like tragic schmaltzy melodrama and yet i didn't hate it i kind of enjoyed this movie i I, it's one of those things where like i know that it's not good but i i wasn't like not entertained so i don't know what what did you guys (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what did you guys think about city of angels i I actually, uh, I think I've liked it every day. I've w- liked it more each day that I become separated from it. Like, I don't know. I It is so dated and it's so dateable. Like, it will not stop. It will just become more and more dated as time goes on. But it was just, like, such a funny, weird like angel world like all of these angels with these like matrix style trench coats <laughs> standing on the beach listening to the sunrise and i did i did like nicholas cage just imploring meg ryan to describe things to him yeah I, th- yeah. <laughs> I thought that was very, like he really wants to know what pears taste like and i don't know it's it's fun to watch such a naive person like so enraptured with life and like trying to experience it so i don't yeah i don't know i i feel like i watched it and i was like well the, uh, this movie was not great and then yesterday we were watching cap um <laughs> the other movie we were gonna watch and i was like well maybe this one's not so bad <laughs> and then today i don't know like it's getting it's kind of fermenting in my mind i i think like there is something sort of beautiful in this movie mm-hmm. about like how human experience is so nice. Yeah. Like just to like be able to taste a pear or to like know what someone's skin feels like yeah. to the touch. Like, and I, I, again, I haven't seen wings of desire. I feel like that's probably what wings of desire really hones in on. But like, there were moments in this that I was like, that's kind of a beautiful thought. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like that new agey sort of spirituality coming up but i i kind of like got on its level yeah 
But as far as Nick Cage is like a heartthrob in this, like, I don't know. He's like pretty, he's pretty creepy just kind of moping and staring at people for the entire is, film, right? Is this right? your movie of contention, or Brandon? Is, I yeah. really, really liked this. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I had like an intense reaction to it. And I actually think he's like intensely erotic in it. Oh, okay. Because of his intensity. I mean, like really he has a way of like sharply cutting through in this. And like when he fixates his attention on Meg Ryan, it's like overwhelming and creepy. And she's kind of creeped out by it. It reminded me a lot of in the cut, the way that he like Mm -hmm. looks through her in that movie. Yeah. And she's like, he's looking down into me is the way she says it in this. Mm. And like, y'all both mentioned the pear thing where he's like, describe how that pear tastes. Yeah. And she's like, you know how a pear tastes. He's like, I want to know how it tastes to you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I want to know your experience. That was a good line. Yeah. It's kind of the same like obsessive fixation as Wild at Heart. It's just very one-sided in this. Yeah. And she warms up to him. Yeah. And it's just the fact that like he's such an otherworldly person in real life. Like he fits this character so well. Like, Nick Cage is like, he's not exactly human in the way that we're, (laughs) the way that most people operate and like his inhuman qualities adapt to this character so well. I thought this was a great use of him in like normie cinema circles. Like I I just like the way that like him experiencing life for the first time is kind of how he always overacts. Like he's always like doing stuff <gasps> in the movies as if he's yeah. just never had that experience is before. Is this blood? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that whole sequence after he like decides to fall uh-huh. um where he like is smashed up at the bottom of the construction site that he just jumped off of. Yeah. Um that's like classic Nick Cage shenanigans where he's like running around like <laughs> wild-eyed and bleeding and smiling yeah. like this is fantastic. I don't know. I just I really thought this was a great film and I did not expect to have that reaction yeah. at all. <laughs> you know, it did have that little like whiff of eroticism from the music lovers where they have this like removed relationship like that communication through letters is kind of similar to that. Like he's not he's only able to experience vicariously through her descriptions. And these the people in the music lovers are experiencing vicariously through their communication i guess when you say like actors have chemistry on camera Uh like a lot of the time it's just like is that person like genuinely interested in the other person yeah like are they actually invested in that person's like life and experiences and like i don't think you could deny that here like he is like obsessed with like everything she does and feels Mm -hmm. and thinks yeah Um, which can be creepy but it is romantic at the same time yeah i just i don't I didn't think that their relationship worked as well as like Laura and Nicholas because I didn't necessarily get the reciprocation from her. I mean, there was a little bit of it there, but it was mostly like his fixation, which was very believable. And then I don't know. I I don't think it totally worked. I, I sort of agree that I don't know if the chemistry was a hundred percent there, but the way the story resolves, like the melodrama at the end, <laughs> again, like I, I guess I'm kind of giving it away. But man, the ending of this is like you can't. Does it get more melodramatic? Than oh that? no! A fucking angel decides like, no, nah, right. I want to like be human to be with this. Chick. I'm gonna give up immortality. I'm gonna give yeah. up immortality, and then 
that happens, like, dude, that's like as melodramatic as it can possibly get. And I was yeah. like all for it. Yeah, it just really worked for me. Like, I, I don't know, like, even her hesitation mm-hmm. feels like she's definitely attracted to him, but it's like terrified of this otherworldly being yeah. and like what he is even is like yeah. a mystery and like that makes men dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> and she's obviously thinking about him. She has that like cool down like masturbation bath right. where she's like rubbing this like <laughs> cold beer bottle in her head to like yeah. not overheat while thinking about him. Right. And then when they finally do have sex, it's this like super like romance novel ideal like Mm -hmm. they basically have sex on a bearskin rug in front of a fireplace like it's like super (laughs) uh like straightforward like mainstream romance fantasy yeah um i I guess i was just in like the right headspace like it was just like so perfectly intense and erotic but never explicit like there's there's nothing really on screen besides that like one sex scene in front of the fireplace that like has any like overt eroticism to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but his like intense stare on her at all times. Yeah, like, uh, I don't know. I just thought it conveyed something. Yeah, and they're having these like very intense conversations about ex- like perception and experience and death and like, I mean, she doesn't have conversations of that intensity with anybody else around yeah. her. So it's this like kind of special place for the both of them she has this very superficial like maintenance sex romance with another doctor yeah. at the hospital and his pitch for her to marry him is like hey we're both here we're both very <laughs> right. busy we're the same <laughs> I, I get what you do right yeah you're not gonna fall in love with someone else so you want to settle for me oh god when he was saying like oh yeah let's go to lake tahoe and we'll hike and we'll run and we'll and then she's like let's spend five minutes together and he's like what? Can't Why? Do it. No. <laughs> Why would we do that? It's, that's my worst nightmare of a relationship. So, go with uh, go with Nick Cage. You know what really like the movie reminded me of was a, another Rosie Perez film, Fearless. Yeah, oh, it had yeah. that like kind of eerie Peter Weir quality to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But I guess like what disappointed me a little bit with this was like there's so much to chew on, like philosophically and theologically about like like okay, angels are genderless. I mean, they should be. They, like, why would an angel have sexual desire? I mean, they're pure being, pure spirituality. And the fact that it's like, Nick Cage is like a dude who's into like a chick. That's what's so weird about it, though. Right. He's, he's not like a human form. Like, he looks like a human, but he's not human. Also, were there any like female body or no, no. Yeah. there's all these dudes all hanging dudes. out in trench coats at the library <laughs> right. I know, but creeps. that's what i'm saying like there was weird stuff like that like the film could have like explored and it, it didn't because i don't think that's what it was trying to do but like that topic of like an angel that falls in love with a human is ripe for like so many interesting angles you could go at and this movie chooses the most like surface level schmaltzy melodramatic angle you could take and leaves out all the like kind of interesting well did stuff. you watch the vim vendor's art film or did you watch the meg ryan no uh, i watched the meg ryan film, <laughs> but now, it makes me want <laughs> yeah. to watch the wim winders yeah. film yeah because i think that's like that idea is so like ripe 
But for what it was, I mean, yeah, no, yeah. it was it was good. If I would love to see the version of this movie where Nick Cage is playing like the Old Testament style angels, where he's just like a series <laughs> of spinning discs with eyeballs, just like a Lovecraftian <laughs> thing that just yeah. completely melts right. her brain when she, oh, when she sees him. What does the pear taste like? I guess also just real quick, like what I didn't understand was like, okay, he knows there's an afterlife, so what's the downside to becoming human if you know? The movie doesn't really discuss afterlife, though. Well, I guess he like walks people to yeah. it. But we don't know what it, it is. And he says, she talks about someone who died, and he said, well, they're still alive, but not in the way you think of. Okay. Yeah. But I think it is distinct from being an angel. I don't think right. that you... Like, the angels, it seems like they can walk on Earth freely Forever. with no responsibilities other than t- shuttling people yeah. to the afterlife. And then it sounds, you know, the afterlife is a totally separate place well i mean again like i'm just projecting but i guess that's where it was lacking it was like man there's like interesting ideas here but it's just gonna go with the most like base level yeah thing i I think it still achieves an eeriness though and like an otherworldly quality even if it didn't like really dig deep into it no when the like when they come out and like their trench coats and they're like all looking down <laughs> mm-hmm. on them it's incredibly <laughs> ever been surrounded oh, by a hundred right. men in black trench coats right. no no <laughs> sounds creepy. it was a very public breakup i would hate for like the cosmic eye of the world to watch a human woman reject me that'd be so sad <laughs> well we do have one more Ooh. romantic nick cage melodrama to watch I picked a movie that I have never seen before. Um, I have never, I had actually never heard of it before Brandon mentioned it. And then I found out that the majority of my family has seen it. And um, (laughs) uh, about half of them like it. Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Uh, This was directed by John Madden, who also directed Shakespeare in Love and The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. He also did a movie called uh, Sloan with Jessica Chastain that a lot of people like, apparently, so... I want to go see that. Anyway, it, this was based on a novel of the same name by Luis de Barnieres, uh, and it is about a little Greek island set during World War II. It follows a doctor and his daughter during the Italian and German invasion of this island, Cephalonia. Uh, so... Italy comes in with kind of their German support, and the the band is led by um, Antonio Corelli, who is played by Nicolas Cage. He is a swashbuckling Italian <laughs> <laughs> captain who, like, doesn't have normal army rankings in his battery. They're <laughs> they're like all organized by the part they play in his uh, little like army opera. And he just, he hates fighting. He loves um, playing his mandolin and singing and having a good time. The uh, doctor's daughter is played by Penelope Cruz, and she is so hot. And um, she is um, engaged to wed uh, Madras, who is played by Christian Bale. Uh, The (laughs) casting in this movie just, like, barely makes any sense, like... Um, Nicolas Cage is kind of Italian, although by his accent, you would not know that Penelope Cruz is Spanish. And then Christian Bale is from Wales. So I don't, anyway, uh, (laughs) (laughs) so Christian Bale goes off to fight in a fight in the war 
And um, she kind of loses her love for him. And then Captain Corelli comes with his mandolin. And uh, she, against her will, falls madly in love with him. This is based on the real invasion of Kefalonia, um, including this slaughter of Italian soldiers after um, Italy was defeated in the war. And then there was also an earthquake that happened on this island that uh, killed a lot of people. So it just kind of follows those events and the developing relationship between um, Penelope Cruz and Nicolas Cage. Uh, This movie is beautiful. The island is beautiful. The village is quaint. I don't think... It's a good movie. No. <laughs> um, it's a bad. It's uh, so objectively bad. bad. <laughs> it's a bad movie. You're right, though. It is very pretty. Yeah. Like, yeah it, it, for a movie this like low effort from everyone involved. Like, yeah. The cinematography is gorgeous. The standard of what a bad movie used to be is so much higher than it is now that like right. it's got all these beautiful crane shots and like yeah. practical explosions yeah. and like. Actual, like, visual craft went into this, like, mediocre thing that no one cared about. Right. Well, yeah. people did care about it because it made a lot of money. Did it? Yes. That's insane. No. <laughs> I was shocked at, like, the box office for the... Like, I this was like this a successful no cultural movie. footprint at all. Like, Well, no, it doesn't have any cultural footprint, but it made a lot of money. Strange. Insane. Yeah, I'd never heard of it, but apparently my, my family had. I had never heard of it until Incredible Weight of Massive Talent, where they <laughs> call it an underrated movie. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know I think about that's that. exemplary of, like, how shallow and dumb that movie is. But anyway. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it's so weird because it takes place during such an like an obviously chaotic and violent time but like nothing that happens has any real weight or impact the only nazi on the island is this like g shucks like kind of guy right. who's like i'm, I'm sorry oh, i have to no. be the nazi here yeah oh i do you know inferior yeah, yeah. I, I just hate from a historical perspective this was like some bullshit like you got the Nazis and then you right. got the Italians, but the Italians are portrayed as like, oh, we're just some good old guys. We just want to play the mandolin and hang uh, out. Even it's the like, pizza, I mean, yeah, yeah, the pizza. Well, we, like, we, we love. Well, you, we don't what about shoot Mussolini anybody. And like yeah, the atrocities no. committed during World War Two and Cruz does get to push back on that a little bit because Nick Cage likes to like play himself off as this like fun right. uncle. And she's yeah. like, you are the oppressor here. Yes. Right. Like you were running it. around oppressing us right. and having a great time. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. and then he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And then he organizes. <laughs> <Mia culpa>. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then he organizes like a fun dance between the Italians and the Greeks so that, uh, you know, they can mend their bonds. Oh my God. Yeah. It was, it was very schmaltzy. And, you know, it's f- like in the same way that. It could happen to you did it had to adhere to these very strict moral standards in order for the Italians to be like, okay, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, they're fighting the Greeks. But Nick Cage repeats over and over again that he's never killed anybody. And like, you know, he praises anybody that has never like committed violence and he he's like such a pacifist. But it's just like that's that probably wasn't. I mean, I'm sure that people on all sides of the war felt that way and practiced that. But that's just like the entire Italian army 
on this island probably didn't. You He's know, basically like a captain of a like battalion. You don't get right. promoted to captain by not killing people. Right. Yeah. I wonder how different that is from the book because they like really like Hollywoodized a yeah. lot of elements of it. Right. Which I looked up. I'm gonna spoil some stuff at the yeah. end. Yeah. Because the end made no sense to me. Like the events, like the the, the earthquake. earthquake. Yeah. It was like. It sets it up so that right. the dad dies in the earthquake, but then he survives. Yeah. It's like, yes. well, why did we it sit didn't make through any that? Sense. Why did we have yeah. the earthquake at but all? But in the yeah. novel, he dies, he dies in the earthquake, which yeah. makes more sense. Or like her adopting the neighbor child as her own kid. It's like that sub-threat really has nothing to do with the story. But in the novel, he sees her adopt that kid. Yeah. Doesn't know that it's like not her birth child. And like assumes that she is remarried, yeah. Um, so he doesn't like come back to or, like or even insinuate like himself in her, her life. Her husband like committing suicide, and yeah. In the novel, the husband like attempts to rape her, yeah. which is an yeah. escalation of the other villagers like murdering and raping women who like actually did flirt with the Italian oppressors. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like so many things that are introduced. In the movie, right. that the movie does not want to deal with. Like, it just, yeah. like, completely steps back, like, okay, I'm not touching that. Uh, yeah. It just ends, ends up right. weird. But it's so strange because it doesn't, it also doesn't leave it out. It's like, it kind of leaves it in there, but then it's not resolved in any yeah. meaning. Yeah, like, the, the earthquake is the last thing that happens, and it has zero impact on the story. Like, their house is destroyed, but they build a new house, like... It looks like eight people die in the town that you ne- you've never met or seen, and yeah, he's just fine. So why, like, why leave the earthquake in the movie at all? It's very no strange. answers to this question. Uh, the other obvious way that this is like Hollywood bullshit is that it is a parade of the worst accents you've ever heard in your entire <laughs> life. Absolutely, yeah, just like phoniest, half-assed accents of, yeah. of every variety you could oh. think of. Well, so you have. Okay, Penelope Cruz, who is speaking Spanish. in her normal accent. Yeah, right. <laughs> she's not doing a Greek but she's playing affectation. a Greek. Yeah. Right. So she's not even really trying. No, and then Nick Cage, who is like New York. <laughs> he's, doing, he's like playing Italian. Like, he's doing like straight up Mario. <laughs> yeah, he's straight, straight up Mario. He's funny in this. Like it's funny. almost like a uh, like Jared Leto in like House of Gucci. Yeah. Uh, he's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 funny because it's goofy. Right. Like it's not a good performance, but it, oh, it's at this, least charming. This meat pie is pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> might be I charming, know. but it's not. He's not sexy. He's not a no, heartthrob. He's in a this. goofball. Of all the movies we talked about in this episode, like he is the least heartthrob in this movie. Like, yeah. I what disagree. Is he doing? <laughs> Whoa. I think- I think Nick Cage is, is hot in this movie. What? <laughs> is it, the, is it him playing the mandolin? It's the mandolin. The mandolin. That, the mandolin. Yeah. It's the mandolin. The scene when where he like, writes a song yeah. for her. Oh, come when on. he like, whips out that mandolin. There's not enough mandolin in this movie. That's <laughs> okay, another Okay, you're right. Problem. That's true. Wait. However, <laughs> when on. the mandolin Let's is there. Let's go back to that. Like, this is Captain Corelli's mandolin. Right. And the soundtrack should be 100% mandolin. And the mandolin is only... What in like one or two songs, one or two scenes throughout the yeah, whole movie? Th- I think there are three mandolin scenes. Come I on. think it's like his like the travel version of what he would like to do, which is like a full oh, orchestra. Come on. Yeah, there should be mandolin all over the place. But he did learn how to play mandolin for the part, which is really impressive. Did he? He had no musical he training. Looked, I mean, he looked pretty good. It, he was doing some picking on on camera, like yeah, he wasn't entirely it. It was playing good. the soundtrack. <laughs> but okay. 
he's charming. Christian Bale. Oh, Christian Bale is awful. Yeah. So bad. He's taking it so seriously. He's like, am I the only one who did the homework assignment, guys? Like, he's got that energy. Even though he's, like, physically attractive but and, like, a sexy man. Right, but I was going to say, like, physically, what him and Penelope Cruz makes more sense. So much more sense. Yeah. Than Penelope Cruz and Nick Cage. There's a whole scene about how beautiful his butt is at the start of the yeah, movie. Yeah, that's a great Everyone scene. just gathers around and look at his ass. Yeah. No one's and doing that for Nick Cage. It's yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> but Cage has that intensity. Like yeah. when he fixates her on the town square and like plays that song and he's mm-hmm. like really gets into it. I can I see that yeah, working. It I totally don't believe works. for a second that she would choose Captain Corelli over yeah. okay. over Christian okay. Bale. Like, give me a break. Yeah, I don't believe that Nick Cage in this movie is at the level of heartthrob that is required by Penelope Cruz. <laughs> yes. However, yes. I still hold fast in my belief that he is hot in this movie. We're, okay, <laughs> I, need, I need you to uh, rank the Cage hotness. Yeah. Now. Okay. Wild at Heart, obviously number one. Number obvious, one. Yeah. yeah. I guess Captain I okay. Carelli. I would say, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I would Get say I would probably say City of Angels. Yeah, that's right. And then Captain Corelli, and then it could happen to you. Which I think is what? the I think I don't agree with. I that. think that's the crux of what's happening here. Is like yeah. it could happen to you. He's so subdued. Yeah, and is just like there. At least in this movie, he's like engaged and alive. Yeah. That is, it no, is ranking really. I, intensity also. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I th- I think It Could Happen to You is above Captain Corelli. As far as like Nick Cage hotness. He was not playing the mandolin and It Could Happen to no, You. No, he, he was being a cop. He's got a job to do. Oh, He's that's what will turn on. <laughs> <laughs> Put that mandolin away. Oh my away. God, he played mandolin for like one scene. It didn't, it was movie. enough. Uh, that is one scenes. of the only good scenes in this yeah. otherwise abysmal no, film. True. I wish this right. <laughs> if this movie had been all Nick Cage playing mandolin, it would be ten times better. Um, and he's not even. I mean, he's fine at mandolin. He's not. He's not great, but it doesn't no, matter. Yeah. I feel like the book has more mandolin too. Like that's Most part likely. of the ending <laughs> is that she has his mandolin. I mean, I think that happens in the movie, but it's like explicit that like she has his mandolin like it's a symbol of him and then he she names the daughter and i think she names the daughter antonia after him and then he comes back and you know reunited with the mandolin and supposedly uh nick cage gave his snakeskin jacket to laura dern as a gift as well after filming wild at heart no no word on whether or not laura dern actually held on to that object but i like to think that she did i hope Hmm. i hope that she did All right, so I have my ranking of of hotness. I think that's accurate, okay. and, but I do think that it could happen to you as a better movie than Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Yes, I, that is that is true. <laughs> Absolutely agree. Only Penelope Cruz came out of this um, unembarrassed. Yeah, I think. everyone was embarrassing. At least Nick Cage was having fun with it. You know, Christian Bale really just like biffed it in this. Yeah, really hard to watch yeah. and be sincere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he had an assignment, and he like took it seriously. Did a good job. Wrong like, choice. Wrong- <laughs> <laughs> this material did not, uh, you know, call no, for that level of like serious acting. Yeah, but I'm sorry, Penelope Cruz and Nick Cage. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Not either. No, for a no. Fucking that's second. no one does. No, absolutely not. It does not work. 
I guess I should have um, had Brittany text in her Nick Cage hotness rankings. Yeah, so I could have so included compare. her. Uh, I mean, I think it goes without saying that Wild at Heart is the winner. White hot. I've, yeah. Burning hot. Ouch. Yeah. Hotter than Georgia asphalt. Yes. Georgia. <laughs> I think that was like, you know, I think that shot up like instantly, like one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, for me, like instantly. Um, and made me, you know, appreciate David Lynch after years of like pulling away a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um but to me, the discovery of this episode, I knew I was going to like Wild at Heart. The discovery for yeah. me was like City of Angels. I did not expect yeah. to get anything out of that. And I was like, damn, what a great movie. <laughs> By oh, the end. Good. Also, you know, made it more of a priority to watch Wings of Desire so I could say such things without being embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just like, yeah, I'm embarrassed that I own a movie that I've never seen. You're not like an avid, like physical media collector either. So like to have like, a dozen movies you probably should have seen those yeah it was like it's literally still in like the shrink wrap (laughs) so future episode topics so we can knock that out um, yeah feel better about ourselves movies we own that we've never seen (laughs) well next week on the show we are going to watch another criterion level art pick but not wings of desire Uh, on the lanyap episode we're going to discuss diabolique a 1950s sort of psychological thriller. Ooh, yeah. Oh, I love that movie. It's yeah, very it's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I'm, I've watched it for the first time for that conversation. Oh, so I'm really? excited to discuss it. Ugh, yeah. It's so fun. And I might end up watching the 90s erotic thriller remake with Sharon Stone uh, while I'm oh. at it. Because how could I avoid that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in the meantime, check out SwampFlix.com. I've been posting a lot of reviews this week of stuff like Petite Mama <gasps> and Vortex. Oh, another one I got to see. And... The aforementioned Andrea Riseborough uh, psychological thriller here before, which Brittany should check out on Hoopla. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Brittany. Bye. Bye. <laughs>